Welcome to the Women in Family Law podcast. I'm Hannah Markham, the chair of the association. Women in Family Law connects, encourages and promotes professional women across the field of family law in England and Wales. We offer advice, support and mentoring. And of course, these podcasts. Well, we've had a bit of a gap since our last podcast with Women in Family Law, but I'm delighted to be back uh, this afternoon and talking to Barbara Corbett, who I know many of you know, preeminent lawyer in Jersey. She's got a really interesting backstory, something that I have loved listening to at the Olympics, and this is going to be no exception now, listening to Barbara's backstory. So, Barbara, welcome. Uh, you have your own practice in Jersey at Corbett Lacane, and it's going to be really interesting to talk to you about how you got there. So, welcome. <laughs> Thank you. Just some good <clears throat> right back to the beginning, Barbara. What were you like at school? <laughs> well, I went to um, a comprehensive school and it was the first year of the comprehensive school when we went. And so we, we ended up going for our induction day. And I wanted to know why girls couldn't do metalwork uh, and they had to do domestic science. And the metalwork teacher said, well, yeah, yeah, just take this hammer and hit this anvil and just see how strong you are. So I began to hit the anvil and then very soon he decided actually I was strong enough to do metalwork and that I could stop. So. I suppose that was perhaps my feminist <laughs> leanings coming out early on. But in fact, at school in the 70s, I didn't ever get the impression that there were things that I couldn't do. It was more of a question of people might be the first woman to do something or that kind of thing. But it, it wasn't that you couldn't do it. And the expectation was beginning to be that women would have a job and would work as well as getting married and having children. So it was, I think... Uh, it was a time when I was in the comprehensive school. It was the women's liberation. It was moving towards enlightenment, put it that way. Yeah, I think I would agree. I think um, it seemed to me to be a sense of time of opportunity. Exactly. You, there was a sort of can-do attitude, which I really embraced and enjoyed. And I'm sure, as you say, you did too. Did you have a, a standard route into law? No, uh, not at all. I... I didn't uh, particularly know what I wanted to do and didn't know what I was going to do law, but I couldn't do the A-levels that I had chosen. I wanted to do a economic history, but it was only political history that was available. So when I was looking around at doing A-levels somewhere other than school, uh, I looked at various FE colleges and different things. And somebody suggested doing A-level law. Well, I, I didn't go on to do A-level law, but just that suggestion of law made me think about it. And my father who was a police inspector at the time, seized on the idea that I might study law because he was kind of looking forward to getting his own back on all the solicitors who'd cross-examined him over the years in the magistrate's courts. So he was, was gently encouraging, but I wasn't pushed in any particular direction. However, I was doing my A-levels and got to a point where you, know, you always get that panicky point just before exams when you think, oh, I'm not, not going to happen. And just in that little window, there was an advert in my father's magazine, The Police Review, for someone to work as an editorial assistant in London in the Police Review office, who was from a police background. So I applied for that and I uh, was, was offered the job right in the middle of my A-levels. In fact, it was the Queen's Jubilee year and I went down for my interview uh, in, in the week. It was absolutely pouring with rain. But anyway, I, I, I got the job and I said, well, I, I was, would like to take the job, but I would like to do a law degree 
at night school as well because I, I still wanted to get a degree at some point. So that's that's what I, I did. Went down to London and I remember going down to London. A friend came with me. We had got the train down and got a taxi from Euston Station. I stayed at the uh, the Girl Guide uh, Hostel Olive House for the first few days until I found myself a flat. And uh, as, I got, as I left the taxi, I said, I don't know how I need to give you a tip. I don't know how much. And so he said, well, just, just give me two pounds. That's how long ago it was in total, <laughs> the fare. And uh, he said, how long are you staying in London for? I said, oh, forever. And he said, no, I'll give you two years. But uh, <laughs> as it happened, that it, it was two years, but it was so exciting. I just loved being in London. It was 1977. It was such an exciting time. And working for the police review was equally exciting. And the first, one of the first articles I wrote and was involved in was on child abuse. And it was just post Mariah Colwell. It was child abuse was something that was coming to the fore. People were interested and noticed. And the police service, it was only a few years previously that women police officers were a separate service and they were a bit more like social workers. And it's only fairly, it was only fairly recently before I started at Police Review that police officers male and female were, were working in roughly the same areas although perhaps not exclusively even then so that was my introduction to London and studying law at night school I really really enjoyed it so uh, I in the course of that first year I met my husband and then decided he was a, a pupil barrister decided to to study full-time and so after one year in London working I began my law degree then uh, that was that was fine uh, for a year, and then my husband, by which time we were engaged to be married but not married, he got chambers in Nottingham. So the question then was, do I stay in London and him in Nottingham, or go with him? So uh, I opted to go with him to Nottingham. Uh, we got married just I think it was about three days into the new term actually, and uh, I'd finished my degree in in Nottingham. All oh, right. And so have you had any interruptions in your career? Or has it been very linear? Well, yes. The, the first interruption started then after I, I graduated because to do um, needing to do either the, I think it was all society finals then, uh, or the bar course, you had to go to, to London to do the bar course. I, I wanted to be a barrister at that stage. I didn't want to go down to London and, and my husband be living in Nottingham. So we decided that we would have children before I finished my qualifications so we did uh, we had our first daughter in 1982 and then we ended up having a total of five children so I spent the time <laughs> quite 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 busy in, in the 1980s while I was having while I had the children I also did work as a volunteer at the Citizens Advice Bureau and I was a, a lay magistrate for about 11 12 years so uh, that, that was the other side of things. So then the youngest children went to school when they were four and I decided to do a master's degree just to see if I could still study and would be able to do what was then the LPC and that, that was fine. But also at the same time, having been a CAB advisor, I actually really enjoyed following things through. I'd also, because I was keen to do advocacy, I was able to represent clients at employment tribunals and social security appeal tribunals and things, which was fun. 
And so I enjoyed the advocacy as, a, as being a barrister would be, but I actually enjoyed following cases through and finding out what happened to clients. So I felt I would be better at being a solicitor rather than a barrister. So I did the LPC. And, uh, and then, so when was your, your first sort of full time job in the law and where? Well, that was at a firm called Brevitons in rugby. Uh, that was a full-time role as a, a trainee solicitor. And I, I stayed at Brevitons as a trainee and then uh, assistant solicitor and, and then became a partner in 2002, I think it, it was. It, um, yes, it, it was a good firm. It was a high street firm and there was a lot of opportunity for family law across the board. When I joined, there was a, uh, another solicitor working who I was working with uh, who was in effect my supervisor and he was trained as a mediator and he was very keen to do public law children work so working with him I broadened I, I wasn't just doing uh, divorce and, and children matters my family law practice was pretty much across the board and uh, he then moved on to another firm and just before my training contract finished so I was able to segue nicely into the work he left behind which guaranteed me a, a job which was was quite useful at that that time. Brilliant and in your career Barbara have you had any mentors people who've sort of stood out as people who've helped you along in your career? Right well an early mentor before before law would be my English teacher she was was very good at she would leave piles of novels by people like Margaret Drabble and Margaret Forster and that sort of thing it was just near my desk and I would just read them illicitly I didn't really think I was supposed to but I, I, she introduced me to all sorts of novels which were, were interesting and just just whetted my appetite for the world in general I suppose in terms of the law yes I, I think that the first uh, the person that I worked with at Brevitons he he was uh, a good mentor he trained me well uh, and he had the right attitude towards things he he was also uh, subsequently a, a very early collaborative lawyer who's a very very firm member of resolution so he inculcated in me the the, the family law uh, way of working which follows the resolution code and and tries to keep things as collaborative as as possible subsequently well while I was a magistrate and the, the I did cross over between being a solicitor and the magistrate for a while. The chair of the bench, she was an amazing woman. She was so calm and so kind and so sensible and just reasonable that it, following her way of just dealing with people uh, or to try to watch the way she did it, I mean, she, she was just amazing. She was just, she, she put people at their ease and even the most despicable little criminals, she was kind and respectful too and very, very supportive. So. As a mentor, just generally, she she was very very helpful. And subsequently, when I came to Jersey, the uh, the first person that I, I worked with there was was a very helpful mentor. Fantastic! So lots of people along the way. And how did you become a partner? Right. Well, this was at, at Brevetons, and I was was working well. I, I was doing a lot of family family work in the in, in the family department, and I had a call one day from somebody in another firm, a partner in another firm, who I worked uh, opposite on, on care cases quite frequently. And he was saying to me, did I know of anybody who was looking for a job? They were recruiting. And I, no, no, I couldn't think of anybody. And then it's only later, I put the phone out. I thought, actually, he was asking me if I wanted a job. And I thought, well, 
I, I want to be partner and I, I want to be a part of the firm and to be able to, you know, to, to move things on and, and change the world. And I'm too old, really, to serve my time um, anywhere else. So if I'm going to be made a partner here at Breverton's, I'm going to have to do something about it. And if not, I perhaps need to, to look elsewhere. So I spoke to the managing partner and pretty much said that to him. And uh, so that put the wheels in motion. It, it, it took a while, but um, the, the seed had been sown. And so, uh, yes, I, I, I was made a partner. I think it, I think it was April 2002. Brilliant. And then you've ended up in Jersey. So what was the route to Jersey? Well, my husband is a commercial barrister and he was doing offshore work um, from chambers in, in London. And he was doing some work in, it was Anguilla, with a Jersey advocate. And there was a, a connection, the Jersey advocate had got some family law issues and conversation arose. And um, my husband said, well, actually, why don't you speak to Barbara? Because she knows about this. So I was, was chatting to him. And in the in the end, I I was taken on to advise as a consultant on the matter because at that time in Jersey there was very little children work that was done, and uh, certainly not public children work, and that so I, it was uh, a matter which was was quite complex. So I advised, uh, and in the course of advising the client, uh, he instructed with me um, David Hirschman to advise and. Andrew McFarlane was on the other side uh, advising silks, even silks couldn't appear in court in Jersey, so the silks would sit behind council, but that, that was how, um, how it started. And it was a, a fascinating time uh, traveling to Jersey for hearings. And uh, it all came to an end and it was it had a lovely time, but I did, wasn't intending to live in Jersey or to move to Jersey. But uh, sort of a, a year or so later, I got to the point where I really was thinking, kind of itchy feet, really. The children had all gone to university. There was sort of, it was, it was good at the firm at Breverton's, but um, I was thinking it might be a bigger world out, outside somewhere else. So I, I suggested to uh, my husband that maybe I should try somewhere, move somewhere else. And I said, I've got connections in Jersey and connections in London. And uh, he said, well, try Jersey first. So I called up somebody who had been working with and asked if there were any vacancies and he said well we're just he'd, he'd just re fairly recently formed a small firm a litigation boutique litigation firm and he said well we're just moving to a bigger office why don't you come and set up a family law department so I did in September 2007. And you've never looked back since serendipity. No, absolutely. Amazing. <laughs> so um, what's the difference in working in Jersey rather than in the England and Wales do you say? would you say? Yeah, well, the family law generally is really quite similar. The Jersey legislation, to a large extent, follows England, and uh, the Jersey courts do refer to English cases. The Jersey cases, uh, obviously, you, you refer to first, but if there aren't any suitable Jersey cases on the matter, then English cases are referred to. So uh, in terms of the law, it's very similar, but the pace of life is so much pleasanter it, it's calmer and there isn't the same the same rush for or certainly not in the firms I've been involved in for billing targets and and, and rushing to do things people have or well, in my experience in the firms I've worked with worked in we've always had the opportunity to write articles to campaign for things that need changing if the feeling is that things need changing and 
the law needs reforming as well as as working uh, in the law and you can you can work long hours you can work long hours everywhere but when your commute is only a 15 minute walk into town and you've got the beach 10 minutes away uh, at the end of the day it's actually no nowhere near as bad as uh, as having to check into town somewhere and drive and park it's it's a very very pleasant environment and the both the court and the legal profession and also politics are really quite small quite cozy and um, not cozy in a in a way that's bad for clients but cozy in a way that you people know each other and understand each other and you're on first name terms with the people, the state's members, that's the equivalent to the MPs and the Attorney General, Sister General, the bailiff, they're known within the legal profession. And it does help, I think, to, to have an idea of the judge before you. You know the personalities of the judges and a little bit about their backgrounds. And it helps when you're putting your case. The other thing is it's a, it's a very good system in that you don't have the long waits that you have in England. Um, I remember going to Coventry County Court and we would be all be there at 10 o'clock and we'll be there for hours and hours and hours. To some extent there was an advantage in that you spent hours lurking about in interview rooms and in the cafeteria and you would perhaps settle cases there because you had nothing else to do, you had to talk. But there was a lot of a lot of waiting around and uh, a lot of inefficiency in Jersey. If your court hearing is at 10 o'clock and it's listed for half an hour, you're in at 10 o'clock and it lasts for half an hour. Nobody discusses things at court, or at least it is starting now, but it was the case that no one discussed things at court because their offices were only five minutes away. So people would go back to their office after court. So that's a advantage and it, it, it saves time and you don't waste time looking around but it's a disadvantage in that you don't get that opportunity to chat things through and possibly settle cases. Although I think you're selling Jersey beautifully both professionally and personally. <laughs> Sounds idyllic. And do you have to start again when you go to Jersey or is there what's the route for qualification if you need to get qualified? Well yes and no. I, uh, I was taken on as a, a senior family lawyer, head of family law, and I was able to uh, see clients and, and, and do all the work uh, of a solicitor that you'd expect, except the court work. You can prepare all the documents, you can see the clients, you can advise, you can have roundtable meetings, mediations, but you can't actually uh, speak in court. Whereas in England, uh, so many trainee solicitors and and legal execs can have rights of audience in in chambers but not in Jersey even the lowest court you need to be an advocate and I would go to court with my advocate colleagues and they would do the talking and I'd be there whispering and prepping exactly and there were times when I just thought "Mm, yeah I would have said that differently and actually I know the answer to that and it would be simpler if I was just there so I felt that I would have to actually qualify as a Jersey advocate and the the Jersey advocates course is notoriously difficult and actually it is it's a very very difficult they're very difficult exams to pass it's not that you need to be clever it's just that you need to know a lot you have to have learned a lot and be able to put it down in an exam so I was very fortunate in that the Institute of Law started in September 2009 when I started my course. So 
there were lectures and there were materials. Before that, there were, there were no lectures organised, there were no materials or course books. In fact, a few years before that, I hadn't even been a syllabus. So it, it had been quite difficult. People had to kind of work it out as they went along. Whereas at least with the Institute of Law, we had lectures and we had materials, but it's still hard. And um, most people these days take the exams over two years, but being as old as I was, I, as in the very early fifties, I think I was maybe 51 then, I felt it was, I had to do it all in one go. So I spent the nine months from September, 2009 to beginning of July 2010 studying and fortunately passed all the exams and was called as a Jersey advocate in September uh, 2010 which was a very very proud time. Brilliant and you've now got your own firm uh, you've got a partner with you there what are the advantages and disadvantages of opening your own firm? Well you can set the tone you can can decide how people are going to work and in our office we, we have a, an open plan office there are six members of staff in total we have uh, our desks spread about the office but we can hear each other and we can communicate and so we all know the right way to work and I can be on the phone and uh, someone will have, have called out of the blue and I'll say oh well I'm just not sure about it. I'll just check the file and then one of my colleagues will just ping me an email with the answer because she's overheard that I need some information and we, we all work together in, in that way and we don't have targets for hours and things everybody can see everybody else is working and we all know that if you're doing something that's non-paying legal aid work or some some other pro bono activity that it won't be chargeable time but that doesn't matter because it's all working to the right end and as a firm we're able to to help our clients and to achieve the best for them, but also to be pioneering and to move forward in new areas, such as changing the law of parentage in Jersey, which is sadly in need of modernization, and also divorce reform. And previously, when I was at the firm I, I first started with in Jersey, we uh, moved towards getting separate representation for children, which is something that didn't really exist before then. And the other thing is that we love organizing conferences. We start, I started the first conference at my first firm because we were pushing to try to persuade the states of Jersey that the children needed a voice in court proceedings, they need to have a children's guardian and lawyers acting for them. And as part of the, of the plan of attack, we um, organized a conference entitled The Voice of the Child, which uh, that was in 2008. And we were very fortunate, Miss Justice as he was then, Ryder uh, was able to be our keynote speaker. And we, st we started out with that conference, which was a, a great success, uh, which it wasn't expected to be. My, the, the partners in the firm I was with were, were oh, no, I don't think we're going to get more than six people from outside Jersey to this. Oh, it's, it's, it's not going to work. And we had loads of people, had over 80 people there for the first one, and it was fantastic. And we've had a whole variety of different sorts of conferences since, because... Jersey is a small place. We need to be outward looking and international. And very many people who live in Jersey live international lives. So they um, marry people from different countries. They want to relocate from one to another. There are cross-jurisdictional divorces, child abduction, relocation cases all the time, probably to a greater extent than other places. So to have international conferences, to make the links with lawyers from the rest of the world, uh, we, we love doing. And uh, that's... That's something that is our own firm, so we can plan it and we can 
have as many conferences as we like and do it the way we want to, which is wonderful. We don't have to compromise with the the commercial law department or anybody else. We can just go and do our own thing, which is great. I, I know these conferences are conferences that people look forward to year on year, of course, We've missed one at least because of COVID. We have. And fingers crossed that this can happen again this year. That's I know that everyone's really looking forward to it, Barbara. Can't wait to get to Jersey. It'd be amazing. Looking back, Barbara, what would you tell your younger self? I think you don't need to do everything at the same time. And you it's never it's never really too late. I mean, I was at home with children. I had five children under six at one stage. And there were times when I would go out and, and you know, to perhaps to a Chambers event, my husband's Chambers and somebody there would sort of look down on me a little bit for being a mother at home with, with children. And with five of them, I couldn't really afford to go out to work because we couldn't afford the childcare. So it, I thought, oh, well, you know, perhaps I ought to be, be working as well, but it wasn't practical. But when I did go out to work, I found and go back into the law, I found actually I caught up quite quickly because there's a sort of, once you get past five years post-qualification, there's not a lot of difference between you and the people on the other side who may be 20 years post-qualification. You're doing roughly the same cases and everybody's learning all the time anyway. And uh, if, if if you work at it, you can can do things in a, a serial way rather than always at the same time. And just because you haven't done something for 10 years doesn't mean you can't in the future. And I think these days people are having portfolio careers. So if you've done something else, not had children, but had a different career, then you can still go into law and still enjoy it. Yeah, I think you're a true role model because you ahead of your era, really paving the way for women in the law, people having had a period of time out, but coming back and qualifying a bit later and then really doing so many different things. So a fantastic role model. And sort of thinking about that, what next, Barbara? What on earth will you do next? What will Barbara do next, <laughs> I ask myself? Well, in fact, the joke is at the office that I won't ever retire. So uh, the, <laughs> the expectation is I will carry on working for some time. And I would like to be able to carry on working at the firm and to change the law in Jersey, to move things on, to get divorce reform, and to just change the little bit of world that I can when I can and encourage other people, particularly other women into law, into family law. I'm very fortunate that, that Nick, my business partner, is a young man who is committed to family law. And it's, it is so nice that there are men in family law, but it's particularly pleasing to be able to support young women coming in and perhaps giving them a break and we offer lots of work experience and internships at our firm because we think it's it's very important to give people the taste of the law. So that's what I'd like to do, to have a, a whole string of people who've had some time with Corbett Lacane and have picked up the family law bug and go on to greater things. And we're there changing the world in little pieces. Brilliant. And I can tell by talking to you that you're truly passionate about our work, what we do. Fabulous to hear you and your offer for people in the future and particularly for women in family law potentially coming to have some experience, some internships. So thank you so much, Barbara. Brilliant uh, to talk to you and thank you for being my guest today. Thank you, Suzanne.
Thank you for listening to the Women in Family Law podcast. Our theme music is Low Tide by Sam Hare, found on Spotify. Please visit our website, womeninfamilylaw.net, or follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WIFLaw, and follow, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts.